evidence and answers. Do you like stories about adventure or perhaps action? Maybe even superheroes. The movies can provide for a great time of entertainment, but they can also provide a time of reflection and discussion with those around us. By asking important questions about what was seen, you'll have an open door to strike up conversation with people. Also in this way, you'll be engaging the culture around you and the opportunity to be an influence for Christ by your gentle and loving responses. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will be concluding an interview he had with author Doug Guyvette, and will discuss the very topic of cinema based on Doug's book, Faith, Film, and Philosophy. Stay tuned. This will be a great discussion. Here's Pat now with part three. But there is in my discipline in philosophy this big question about how we can know that the world we experience is the way the world is, since the world could be very different than the way it is without changing the experiences we have of the world. So now let me break that down into simpler terms. Rene Descartes in the the 1640s, who was actually a Christian philosopher, had us think about the possibility that, let's say, I am being deceived by an evil genius, and that I don't have a physical body, there isn't a world of other persons or physical objects, and pretty much everything I believe about the world is just fabricated. I'm just caused to believe those things by this transcendent, this supernatural, powerful genius who's evil and wants to deceive me about everything I experience. Descartes said, well, if that's true, let's just say that's a possibility and it turns out that it's true, the evil genius can't deceive me about everything. Because there still has to be uh, something like myself to be deceived. So I have to exist. And I have to exist as the sort of thing that can have thoughts and ideas, even if they're all completely mistaken. And that's where he got this, this thing that made him famous, this statement that made him famous, I think, therefore, I, I exist. And from there, he worked his way back up to the true existence of a perfect God who would exclude the possible existence of a, an evil genius. And uh, by that means, he was able to establish to his satisfaction that the world is the way the world seems. So, you know, you might ask questions like that about the matrix. Is there a way for the individual in the matrix to actually figure out from the inside that the world of appearances is the actual world and not the world he's being pulled about by some other so-called authority? And that would be something to think about for anybody watching that movie. Another way to put it would be this, Pat. Somebody says to me, you know, that movie creates skepticism and suspicion about the real world, and I even feel it myself. I'm not sure what to think. So first start with the movie and ask yourself, suppose you're the character in the movie. Ask yourself, is there some bedrock notion, some bedrock belief that you might have that you could be sure is true, even if everything else was false? And if that's the case, then maybe you can work from that little kernel, that little seed, that nucleus of thought that's indubitable, can't be wrong, and see if you can work your way out of the matrix and be convinced that appearances are 
reality. And then you could shift it over and say, but now what am I, about my experience? How does my experience in this world differ from the way the experience of Keanu Reeves is being depicted in the movie The Matrix? See, what is being depicted for him, or in his case, really doesn't resemble the way we experience the world in our case. So it would be a mistake for us to draw the the skeptical lesson from the film and apply it to our own lives. That's quite fascinating. I'll build on that a little bit. How would you answer that question? Well, that's a great question, and I would answer it with several points. First of all, I'd say, well, my version of reality is not that different than yours. And I know that even though I don't know what your version of reality is. <laughs> I mean, maybe we've never met, maybe we've never talked, and you want to throw down that challenge. How do I know that it's my version of reality that's correct and not yours? And I want to say, well, look, you're a human being too. Your version of reality on some level, on, on some general level, is not really different than my own. And we can compare notes and we can see where we, we can agree about how the world seems to us. So my first claim would be how the world seems to you is not that different from how the world seems to me, right? That means the second point then is that when I claim that this is how the world is, I'm not privileging my view over your view. I'm not saying my view is right and your view is wrong. I'm saying we're both on the right track. My third point would simply be follow the evidence. What evidence do we have that our view of reality is actually mistaken? And, of course, we don't have evidence that our view of the world is mistaken unless, you know, something comes along that's more than just a possibility. So somebody can say, look, it's possible that I'm a brain in a vat. I'm not a human being. I don't have a body. And my brain, if you like, is lying inert in this vat. And some mad scientist has attached electrodes to my brain in order to send electrical signals into my brain and stimuli into my brain so that certain experiences are created through this mechanism. And so now my brain is creating, so my brain is having experiences of a world that's not real because of what this mad scientist is doing to my brain, okay? Now, that's supposed to be a possibility. Philosophers have entertained this possibility and said, you know, doesn't this mean that we can't know anything? Because for all we know, we are exactly that, just brains in a vat. I mean, the world would feel and look just like it does to us now if, in fact, we were just brains in a vat. So how do we know we're not? Right? That, that's right. a big worry. Yes, it is. And what I want to say is, all you've done is describe the possibility. But describing a possibility doesn't give me a reason to think it's true. So possibilities by themselves don't count as evidence. And what I have instead is evidence that I'm not a brain in a vat. And that's good enough to justify my belief that, I, that, that the way things really appear is the way things really are. And so it would be irrational to be a skeptic. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, at the end of that movie, the climax where Keanu Reeves is fighting the uh, program, I think he's some kind of virus, and Keanu Reeves is, is getting beaten to a pulp, and in the end, the virus looks at him and says, you know, why do you fight? You know, why do you continue on? I think he's asking the question, you know, what is mm -hmm. the reason for your existence? 
And so that's the big climax mm-hmm. there. I'm, and I'm waiting for this profound answer. And Keanu Reeves <laughs> says, I choose. You know, and, and that was such a letdown. But that seemed to be the grand question we're all asking here. And I found that answer, you know, I choose. Or perhaps it was stating because of free will. I found that to be quite disappointing, didn't you? Yeah, it is disappointing because the obvious, really the question is, why did you choose this? When, <laughs> yeah. when a person says, why did you fight? He is already assuming that he has free will. And now he wants to know why he exercised his will to fight. And all uh, the Reeves character does is say, well, I chose. So his answer is, I chose it because I chose it. <laughs> and that's a completely empty yeah. answer to the question. Right? It doesn't illuminate anything. It's right. But you know what? That's probably part of the message of the film. It's not like they had to end it somewhere and they, there wasn't really a good answer that he could give. No, that's probably the whole point, that you just make these arbitrary choices. There's no rationale for them. You just act. And that would be a, a plausible way to interpret that line and, and at the end of the movie. Yeah, that would be all we have if God doesn't exist and we're not created for a purpose and a meaning if there is no creator. Well, it's like Sartre said, I think it was Sartre, we are condemned to be free. Well, for the women who listen to this show, they probably want to hear your critique of a romance movie. So let's pick a Ah. contemporary romance movie here. How How about Pretty Woman? That seems to be a classic here. Well, you've been asking questions about films that we discuss in our book. Yes. Greg uh-huh. Jeffson is the contributor to, he contributes a chapter to the book that discusses, I think there are three films he talks about in that same film. And it's about how we get, where we get our ideas about romance and true love. He talks about this film, Pretty Woman, from that point of view. Well, you know, what's the storyline? This is a woman who has sold her body, right, to make her way in the world. And somehow she finds a better way to live without ultimately forsaking that style of life. Does that sound right to you as a way right. to uh-huh. describe what's going on? So a question would be, the way she lived her life was deeply damaging to her self-identity and her esteem, how she felt about herself. And that changes over time. But... Does the life she ends up living really provide her with any better basis for having a greater sense of self-esteem and self-identity than the life she lived before? And that's a question about how different her life really is. There's reason to think that her life isn't that different than it was before. And so she doesn't have any stronger basis, any more solid basis for finding meaning in her existence than she had before. Wow, that's pretty profound there. Puts a negative twist on what many see as a very positive kind of movie or a positive ending to that movie. Yeah, see, so, so let's think about what we've been doing here, Pat. I've been giving you two things. I've been suggesting two things, ways to ask questions about films and then answers that you might give to those questions. And that's something I think it would be good for us to think about when we watch movies, those two questions. What kinds of questions could we be asking about films, and what kinds of answers to those questions 
are we looking for? The main thing is to learn how to ask the right questions. So they're just questions that are based on observation. So you have to start with observation. You have to describe what's going on. You have to describe what's going on at a deep level and not just at the surface level. And then ask your questions about that. Have I understood this movie correctly? Have I interpreted it in a way that's plausible? Maybe a movie can be interpreted in several different ways. But you want to think about a movie at least in light of a plausible interpretation. So if you've got two or three plausible interpretations, just start with one and think about its implications and what it means. Ask questions like, do I believe this? Do I live this way? Would I want to be this kind of person? And then ask the why question. Why should I believe it? Why would I want to be this way? What's admirable about this person, and why would I want to be like that person? Great questions to ask. They're, they're fundamental questions. What is the good life, according to this movie? What is the good life? What is the good life in the movie Saving Private Ryan? What does that look like? What is the good life in the movie Pretty Woman? What does that look like? What does the good life look like at, according to the movie A Walk in the Woods? What does the good life look like in a movie like Bruce Almighty? You know, that question makes sense for all those films. You can ask that question in every case. And in many cases, the answer will be pretty much the same thing. And it will be a life lived without reference to God. Wow, that's that's very insightful there. And great questions we ought to be asking with each movie we're watching. Maybe the last movie we'll ask you to analyze because we're heard throughout Asia. How about some of the foreign movies you folks talk about? Movies coming out of Asia. Many award-winning movies have come out there. Let's critique one here. It's Asian, but it's got some American in there. How about The Last Samurai? Tom That's Cruise. That's a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, he yeah. Were, he fought in the American Army, the cavalry there. I was involved yeah. at Battle of Little Bighorn, I think, under Custer. And then he's recruited to train a new modern army in Japan who's doing battle with the samurai who wants to keep it the old ways, the old traditional, the Bushido code, the samurai code. And you have yeah. the emperor and the nation trying to modernize and move in a whole new direction. And Tom Cruise is brought over there to train this new army. And he enters into that tension there. Do we stay with the old Japanese way or do we go with the new modern Western ways? And that division is there in the country. And Tom Cruise is kind of in the middle of that as he's training the army. And then he's eventually captured by the samurai. And he learns the ways of the samurai and how noble and 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 wonderful it is. And so he's caught in that tension there. Yeah, he's caught in the tension. There are a couple of, of assumptions that are being made in the film. One is an assumption about the, the virtue of warfare. And another assumption is about the contribution that someone from outside the culture can make to people within the culture. You know, why they would think that they could learn something from him that would help them accomplish their goals when they have this long tradition of doing things a certain way. So those are a couple of interesting thoughts, right? That there's virtue in warfare. One question is what are they fighting for? Another question is how do they how do they fight? What are their methods? What motivates them? And I don't have a lot to say about that movie because I haven't done much analysis of the film. 
So I would be thinking about questions to ask, questions about the film itself or questions to raise for the characters. Why would Tom Cruise, this character, why would he even do what he was asked to do? Why would he go over there? What's motivating him to do that? Now, let's stick with our what makes for the good life question. He has some conception of the good life that would explain why he would go all the way to Japan and risk his own life to do what he does. So what is his view of the good life? Yeah, you know, in you know, he, he seems to be lost. You know, he's an alcoholic and he's kind of lost sense of direction and meaning in life. And yet when he's captured and he lives with the samurai and learns, you know, the Bushido code and some of their philosophy, it ends up he finds the meaning of life. And his life mm-hmm. is kind of restored. Mm-hmm. It's just what you're talking about. It's somewhat redemptive, isn't it? Yeah. So here's another question. Does the redemption of his sort of dead-end life through his encounter with the samurai lend credence to the samurai worldview? In other words, are we supposed to think good thoughts about the samurai worldview, their conception of reality, because of the benefit he derived from living in their presence, in their community. That's a question about whether the movie is trying to persuade us to accept a view of the world that is non-Western, and of course, non it wouldn't be a Christian theistic view of the world. So, you know, maybe... Now, here's a couple of things, here are a couple of things to keep in mind. One would be, ask the question... Are we supposed to, are we supposed to be drawn, attracted to the samurai code, which is part of a core worldview notion? It's part of their core identity um, as a community. Are we supposed to be attracted to that code as a result of watching this movie because we, we see the redemption of this one man, this American man? Maybe so. But maybe as Christians, we want to say, oh, well, then we've got to be very careful about that. We don't want to be lured into acceptance of a worldview that's non-Christian or even anti-Christian. But on the other hand, we might say we might want to say, well, maybe in every long-lasting, every enduring culture, good things have been emerged. There are good things, good principles, good lessons for life that come out of those cultures and out of those ancient views of the world. And maybe there is something we can learn from them that doesn't require us to completely accept that worldview. Maybe God is actually active in common grace, providing different cultures and different peoples over human history with ways of making sense of life that are not completely wrong, even if they don't lead salvation. You know, we've really enjoyed this time listening to you analyze these movies and seeing how you think through it helps us also think through these movies and Mm. be good critics and critique movies and come out with some great discussion pieces here. You know, when we have a conversation like this, at the end of the conversation, we're all thinking, oh, so when when somebody asks me, what did you think of that movie? We don't just say, oh, it was a good movie, or I give it four stars out of five. We'd say, well, here's one of the ideas that was presented in the movie, and this is what I thought about that. This is how I feel about that. And these are my thoughts. I, I actually 
found myself agreeing with a, a major thesis in the film, or I didn't, and here's why. That's a very different way to talk about what we like about a movie than the way we normally do. Yeah, and when we learn how to watch a movie and critique it and analyze it and ask those great questions, it's going to make us as Christians a lot more interesting and have greater ability to engage the culture and the idea of the cultures and the people around us. Yeah, I think it makes conversations with non-believing friends a lot easier than you would expect because all you do is watch a movie or maybe you just maybe you haven't gone to see the movie together. But you know how often we just sit around and we say, hey, what are your favorite movies? And maybe you've seen some of the same movies and you start a conversation and you say, hey, did you ever notice this? And what do you think about that? And that's very easy. Conversation like that is very easy, very natural. And it's not hard to touch on fundamental questions about human existence, where God fits into the picture. And yet we think we, we try to make it really hard talk about God with people who don't know Jesus, and it really shouldn't be that hard. The secular world has created for us powerful touchstones for doing evangelism. Yeah, and, you know, Jesus and the apostles used the ideas and the issues of their day to start up spiritual conversations and uh, introduce people to the great truths of God, eternity, and salvation, didn't they, as well? That's true. And Jesus, of course, communicated so many of his less than true story in parables. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Doug Guyvet, a professor of philosophy at Biola University and their graduate school, Talbot Theological Seminary. They've written a great book on this topic, which I highly recommend, Faith, Film, and Philosophy, Big Ideas on the Big Screen. Well, Doug, if people want more information about you and the things that you've written, where can they go to get more information? Well, I have a, uh, a website, DougGivett.com, that's D-O-U-G-G-E-I-V-E-T-T, DougGivett.com. And, of course, uh, just about anything I've written can be found on Amazon. Or you can write to me uh, at Biola University in the Talbot School of Theology. Great website with great resources and a blog over there as well. You know, my generation grew up with film. We used to be able to go to the movies, and if we didn't see a movie when it was in town, we didn't see the movie at all, unless maybe eventually it got you know re-aired on television. But that was very rare when I was growing up. Today, this generation has grown up on movies. I grew up with movies. They grew up on movies. So... You can buy the DVD or you can download it from the Internet and you can watch the movie over and over and over again. And that's what young people have done. And so they have assimilated film and the ideas of film and the lives of different characters and stories in different ways than I ever did. And I think that we're going to see this generation actually live their lives out through the lens of the films that they have watched so much of the time. And we see evidence of this by the fact that young people today are drawn into the filmmaking industry. So many young adults actually made movies with the camcorders that their parents bought when they were just children. And this explains why there are so many universities, colleges that have developed film studies programs and direction programs, production programs, 
at Biola University, where I teach, we have a really good film department. And we wouldn't have a film department if there wasn't a demand among Christian people to get better at making movies that would speak to our culture. And I think that's because we are, this is a generation that grew up on film, whereas mine was a generation that grew up with film. That's a fantastic point you make. That's, once again, our guest has been Dr. Doug Guybet, professor of philosophy at Biola University, a great university of young people looking for a Christian education built on a Christian worldview, not just the school that has a chapel service, a school that's going to teach you from a Christian worldview perspective. Biola is one of the top schools that I recommend anywhere in the world. So, Doug, thanks for being here with us here on Evidence and Answers. We hope to have you again soon. Thank you, Pat. It was great talking to you. I want to thank you again for inviting me, and I wish you God's best in your ministry. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or even online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 o